Welcome to the Healing Grove Podcast. I'm Dr. Kristen Ryman, an integrative holistic family physician, author of Life After Lyme, and host in this virtual space of learning, healing, and growing. I believe humans are like trees, and our physical limb is only one of many. Health on all limbs of the tree, emotional, conceptual, social, spiritual, is absolutely required for the whole tree that is you to be vibrantly well. I created the Healing Growth Podcast as a place to showcase some of the world's best integrative and holistic medicine, to expose you to transformative tools and mindset shifts for all limbs of your tree. I hope you enjoy our conversation in the Healing Grove today as much as I enjoyed having it. Good morning, Liz. Good morning, Kristen. I'm so happy to see you, and I'm so grateful that you're here. I am so happy to be here. This is really um, exactly where I want to be right now. Thank you for making time for me today. Oh, for sure. All right, before we get into it, I want to introduce you formally. So everybody, this is my friend Elizabeth Stanley, PhD. She's an associate professor of security studies at Georgetown University and the award-winning author of Paths to Peace and Wide in the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. Looks like that. After her own healing journey from complex trauma and Lyme, she created mindfulness-based mind fitness training, or MFIT, taught to thousands in high-stress environments. MFIT research has been featured in 60 Minutes, ABC Evening News, NPR, and many other media outlets. A U.S. Army veteran, Liz holds degrees from Harvard, Yale, and MIT. She's also a certified practitioner of somatic experiencing a body-based trauma therapy, which I'm hopeful she's gonna talk a little bit to us about today. So that's my introduction, Liz. I just wanna also say that Liz and I went to college together, but never knew each other at college. We hooked up a few months ago at our college's collective 50th birthday party for all of us. So I've just dated us formally online. (laughs) And we had the good, I had the tremendous good fortune of just randomly or not so randomly, sitting down next to Liz during our uh, last day brunch at that reunion or that mini reunion and walked up as she and my husband were talking about her experience in Bhutan, which made me like drop everything and be like, okay, go on. I'm here for a reason. I have to hear your story. And by the end of her story, I was like, you must speak to my people because you are such a gift. You have so much to share and such an amazing, amazing story. So thank you for being here. Thank you again for having me. I am just so delighted to be a part of this community. Um, Having been someone in this community of people dealing with badness in my own mind and body, um, this this is my kindred spirits. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, you're among friends. Take us back. We want to all hear your story. I really want to hear it again, and I really want others to hear kind of what led you to be in this select special elite club. (laughs) of people <laughs> who experience complex chronic badness. <laughs> so um, I come from a long military family lineage. There's been a Stanley serving in the U.S. Army every generation uh, since the Revolutionary War. Wow. Um, I am the first female in that lineage to serve. Um, and uh, my grandfather was in World War II in the Pacific, and then he was in the Korean War. My father served several years in Vietnam and was on active duty for 30 years. 
you know, right along the Iron Curtain um, in Europe. And so I kind of initially was moving into the family business, but long before I did that, I grew up in a household with lots of family members who had experienced their own trauma and stress, and it impinged on our family system. Um, as a result, I experienced, like many people, childhood trauma and um, several shock trauma events before I even started uh, at, at Yale with you. And while I was at Yale, I had an ROTC scholarship and then I served in the army and I was overseas um, my entire service. I was in Korea and Germany, did two deployments in the Balkans, experienced a lot of stress on active duty, chronic sleep deprivation. I was often in jobs because of the drawdown after the Cold War. I was often in jobs that were for much higher ranking people. And so they were very stressful positions. Um, and I also experienced uh, chronic um, health conditions that started developing at this point. At that time, I didn't understand what that was. I just assumed it was, I was pushing myself a little hard. And like many of us, I tried to sort of shove it under and compartmentalize it. And, and often that would just sort of make it worse. So I had never had really bad chronic conditions in childhood, but while I was in active duty, it all kind of started blossoming. I developed environmental asthma, was coughing blood. I, um, I was just had chronic respiratory things going on. I had really bad insomnia. Um, and while I was in the army, I was also bit by a tick and I got one of the bullseye rashes and went to the health clinic and said, Hey, like, isn't that bullseye rash a sign of Lyme disease? You know, cause we went to college in Connecticut. We knew what Lyme disease was, but most people in the early nineties didn't. And the doctors in the health clinic said, nope, I have never heard of it. And I'm like, but you're supposed to give me antibiotics. And they're like, nope. So they wouldn't treat it. And the bullseye rash went away and I thought, okay, it's over. Like, you know, I, I didn't know enough about the disease at that point. And it totally left my mind, but it was never treated. While I was in Bosnia, I had a near-death experience. All of these lung things came to a head. Um, I had pneumonia. I had been running a convoy in really bad snow from Hungary to Bosnia. And we had vehicles that felt like shifted in the ice and overturned into houses. And so we had to wait for the Croatian government to get a crane. And so anyway, we're sitting outside for four days in three feet of snow. And I have double pneumonia, but I don't know it. I'm just coughing and coughing. And we finally get into Bosnia and um, we're clearing out where we're gonna put our, our zone of separation base. We're clearing out concrete, like concrete from a building that had been bombed. We're gonna try and put our tents up there. And the concrete dust on top of all of this other stuff, just, I stopped breathing, um, completely stopped breathing. And I was in the hospital, a UN hospital for two days, and then they sent me right back to work. And, you know, I was taking, and they just pumped me with drugs and I carried a little cup around and I would just, you know, expectorate into this little cup and close it and put it aside. And it's just, when I think about what I did with my body back then, it's just mind blowing. But I ended up leaving active duty shortly after that. Um, I had also been dealing with sexual harassment in a chain of command and reprisal against me for that. And so I left active duty and became a whistleblower. While I was in graduate school, all of this kind of came to a head. Like my body had completely broken down. 
I'm still dealing with lung issues. I'm now dealing with PTSD and I had depression and no, not sleeping. And it was just this morass. I felt so powerless and so helpless. And I was you know, trying to double down on the ways that I had coped my entire life which was, you know, suck it up and push on and keep achieving. And so I made the very, in retrospect, just bizarre decision. But in that moment, and of course, understanding how minds and bodies work, I guess it's understandable. I did two graduate degrees at the same time um, and was just, it was making it worse. So eventually, I realized I can't continue doing this and um, started first with some acupuncture and then with uh, some yoga and then my yoga teacher introduced me to mindfulness training the mindfulness was having really bad effects and i didn't understand why and maybe we'll talk about that later on um, and eventually it got to the point where I, I lost my eyesight that's when the line came back in although the doctors didn't know that's what it was and that was the beginning of me realizing I just can't keep doing this this way. Like I have to do it differently. And that set me on a good seven or eight years of a real healing journey um, to Burma, to the clinical training I did, and all of that came together in MFIT. Um, and I feel like there's nothing that I teach that I haven't learned from first in my own mind and body, but that I have witnessed in so many other minds and bodies that I've worked with over the years. Um, you know, they're very lawful, these minds and bodies. Um, they're, they're, they're controlled by laws of nature. And when we begin to understand how that works, it really can be very empowering because, you know, for so many years, I thought of myself as broken and damaged that things that worked for other people wouldn't work for me, that I was coping with things that no one else was coping with, like what was going on there. And it just was so liberating to understand that so much of this was just wiring that had been happening unconsciously my entire life. And that when I could make some slight differences in how I, how the habit patterns I was making, the choices I was making, these slight differences, sent the wiring in a totally different direction. And that was, it was both liberating to know it hadn't been my fault, this wasn't anything personal, this was just minds and bodies doing what they do, but then also to know that there were places where I could intercede and have choice. And, and it, it just began to shift. Well, I have like 10,000 questions for you, but I wanna focus on the one that I think right now our people are desperate to hear, which is what the heck did you learn from all that and how do you use it? How would you, if you could tell someone who was in your situation, you know, your darkest moment, how to do this? Is there a regimen? Is there a path? Is there a next step that makes sense for people? What do they need to know? Well, there's lots of different questions in that question, Kristen. I know, I told you I had 10,000. <laughs> Um, I would, I'll start with the question of what I wish I had known when I was in that worst place. Um, I, at that point, had done enough reading to have the sense that my health was some kind of report card and that I was failing. That's the mindset I was in that moment. 
and we've developed this belief or mindset that things are going wrong with our health because we did something wrong, because we failed in some way, because we didn't make some perfect choice that helps health be there. And that, in my experience, when I was going through the worst of it, that was not just a belief that I developed for myself, it was clearly a belief that was being forced on me by the medical practitioners I was working with. In retrospect, now I look back and see because they didn't know it was Lyme. It took us 12 years later on to figure out it was Lyme. At that time, I just was losing my eyesight and they didn't know why. And I think that the doctors were probably, you know, just anxious and confused that they couldn't give me an answer. They wanted to have an answer to give me. And when they couldn't, I think that they externalized that onto, well, you must be just, you know, making this up. This must all be in your head. This must be psychosomatic. You know, this is something going on in you that's wrong and you're wrong. Like that was the message they would convey. Can I interrupt you for one second? On behalf of my entire tribe of doctors, I apologize for doing that to you. That's not okay that doctors do that. I'm sorry. It isn't okay that they do that, but I can understand why they do that. You know, they chose a healing profession to help. And I think for them, now knowing what I know about how trauma works, it was probably very traumatic stress for them that they couldn't answer, that they didn't know. And that made them feel helpless and they don't want to feel helpless. And for sure. I'm, I, I don't think they were intending to, to externalize onto me in that way, but that's what happened. Um, so for anyone in the tribe who has felt like my health is my report card and I must be failing or I'm doing this wrong or has had that message conveyed, the thing I would say now that I wish someone had said to me then was, it's a both and. You know, sometimes there are health things that happen that are not at all under our control. And that is not our fault. It's not our fault. And this is the both and, even if things have happened that we are deeply suffering, we are always responsible for the choices we make for how we're gonna work with that right now. And so finding that agency and being told that a, I had agency, B, that there were concrete things I could have done that would make it better. That's what I wish someone had said to me then. And that's why I wrote Widen the Window. That's why I developed mindfulness-based mind fitness training to share with people so that they would help their both brains, their thinking brain and their survival brain, be able to have new ways of interacting with and coping with and managing their condition. And you know, the reason, I'll just stop there for right now. Let's talk about the thinking brain and the survival brain, because you spend a lot of time in your book really getting into the details of what those things mean. Is there a simple way to sum it up for people that can help them start to realize that we have these two parts and that we need to help them learn how to play nice together? Yes. Um, so we, there's a kind of dual processing model of decision making that's built on the triune brain. The thinking brain is what, if any of your um, listeners, watchers have read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Thinking Slow is controlled by the thinking brain. So the thinking brain is our evolutionarily newest parts of the brain. 
It's what helps us do planning, anticipating, thinking, deciding, reasoning, um, and it controls all of our executive functioning. So our ability to focus and pay attention, our ability to remember things consciously, all of that's controlled by the thinking brain. Many, many people identify with their thinking brain, like as the whole brain, because that's the part we hear, that little inner commentary that's sort of giving us thoughts throughout the day. It's the thinking brain that we're hearing and often responding to. The most important thing from the perspective of chronic illness with thinking brain is that the thinking brain can make chronic illness worse because often what's going on in our body is um, you know, not what the thinking brain expects and wants. And so it can create this kind of narrative that's at odds with what's really going on and that that can actually exacerbate our symptoms. So thinking brain is not always our, our friend and helper, um, even though we identify with it. The survival brain is the evolutionarily older parts of the brain. And it is what Daniel Kahneman calls thinking fast. The survival brain is unconscious to us, um, automatic, deeply reflexive, it's just constantly going. And its major functions are to turn on stress arousal, to keep us safe. And so it's doing that through this process called neuroception. It's constantly scanning the environment um, and asking, is this threatening or challenging? Is this threatening or challenging? And it's scanning the environment around us. It's also scanning the environment inside us. So if we're dealing with symptoms, if we're dealing with racing thoughts, if our heart rate has been elevated, if we're having gastrointestinal distress or physical pain, our survival brain's scanning inside and seeing that and noticing, oh, and then thinking that's a threat and it's turning on more stress arousal and it can become a bit of a vicious cycle for those of us who have dealt with complex and chronic illness. It's, it can be sort of self-activating in that way. So the, the survival brain controls neuroception, this turning stress on. It's also the part of the brain that controls recovery, turning stress off. And for many of us, you know, we're, we haven't been taught the techniques to help the survival brain feel safe and stable enough so that it will turn stress off. Um, many of the techniques we're taught are thinking brain techniques. The thinking brain doesn't control stress. It's the survival brain that controls stress. So we have to work with the survival brain, teach it how to notice and feel stable and grounded and safe. And whenever it notices that and it sort of, its neuroception is, is this threatening and challenging? Nope, it isn't. It automatically turns the stress off and turns it and sends us into that recovery function. And that's a really important thing to work with when we're coping with chronic illness, because even if there's all of these symptoms that might feel out of control to us, we always have the choice of where we're directing our attention to support our survival brain in feeling safe. We always have the choice in how we are setting repeated habits into play that have tremendous effects on our minds, on our bodies, on our immune system. And, and so some of those little shifts that we make in daily habits have these really big payouts in terms of helping the survival brain feel supported and safe, and then turning on all the recovery functions that actually help our health. 
Beautiful. So what I'm hearing is the, the people who are cultivating a practice of sort of daily mantras of just saying, I'm whole, I'm healed, I'm well, those are things that are thinking brain mantras or do they actually? Those are thinking, nope, those are thinking brain mantras. Those are thinking brain mantras. Like any, any of those affirmations, any of the positive reframing, there's a lot of interest in positive psychology in our culture right now. All of the positive psychology techniques are all thinking brain techniques. They're taking a thought and reframing it, looking for gratitude, looking for the positive in something. Those are all thinking brain techniques. That isn't to say that they're not going to do something, but they're not getting at the core issue, which is helping to bring the mind-body system back down to a regulated neurobiological baseline. Only the survival brain can do that. And so we have to work directly with the survival brain. So how do we do that? What's like your daily regimen for accessing that brain and cultivating it and making it feel safe? Will you share that with us? Yes, well, the first exercise in the MFIT sequence, uh, I'll explain how it works right now. It's uh, explained in chapter 12 in the book and I have a five minute audio exercise of it that we can share with the, the group. Um, it's on my website yeah. and you can get it. Um, it's all about directing the attention and training ourselves to have enough attentional control to direct our attention in ways that help the survival brain notice stability and support. So it's, it's not like, um, it's not a sexy thing, but we're paying attention to the places of contact between our body and our surroundings. So just right now while we're sitting here together, you can notice the pressure and hardness underneath the backs of your legs and your butt with the chair. You might notice dampness or heat or tingling or numbness or achiness. We're not thinking about the contact, we're noticing the sensations mm -hmm. of contact. It can be the backs of your legs and butt, it can be the bottoms of your feet with the floor. If you're lying down on the bed, it can be the whole back side of your body. If you don't, have hypertension, you can lie on the floor and put your legs up against the wall, feel the backs of your legs against the wall and your back against the floor. It's great for lymphatic um, drainage as well, but not with, not with high blood pressure. Um, those are different postures where someone can use this contact points exercise. And you know, when you direct your attention there, if the mind starts going, the thinking brain starts going into thoughts, you just disengage attention from the thinking, keep redirecting it back to the sensations of contact. And as we do this in a repeated way, many, many days in a row, don't have to practice very long, just five or 10 minutes, it is showing the survival brain that we have this built-in physical refuge of stability. And over time, there's exercises in the sequence that build on that, that help the survival brain notice the safety and then to discharge all of the sensations that come with stress discharge. Um, and I talk about that exercise in chapter 13. But that's one very basic thing everybody can do every day. A couple other very basic things to support the survival brain with its recovery function. The first one is sleep, getting enough sleep. The survival brain does so much of its recovery when our thinking brain is offline sleeping. Um, and for many people who have dealt with chronic health conditions um, or have dealt with chronic stress and trauma and they've not, they've been blocking the recovery, like I had been doing for so many years, 
when we are getting restful sleep and we know the survival brain is doing some recovery during sleep, we often experience either like those big body jerks, you know, that happen, which is a sign of discharge actually. Um, and not, not like restless leg syndrome, but like the whole body having a jerk occasionally. We can have night sweats, which sometimes is a sign of illness, but sometimes that's actually a sign of discharge. We're letting off some of the heat that is often one of the ways that the discharge process works. So getting enough sleep, we do so many recovery functions while we're sleeping, um, pruning synapses in the brain and helping to heal the gut, helping to eliminate toxins. It's just a really important time. So I know when people are dealing with chronic illness, it can be hard sometimes to sleep well, but setting up a really good sleep regimen, really, really important. I want to thank you for sharing those two examples because I've had many, many patients come to me with similar similar experiences and often their thinking brain takes hold of those sensations and creates a narrative or a story that creates even more fear. You know, yes. this means I am having a Herxheimer or a flare of Lyme. This means, um, even though just despite the fact that their trajectory of, of, you know, healing is doing this, like this means yes. I'm, I'm taking a backslide or this jerking thing means I have or, or lichia or mycoplasma or some other thing that's known to create fasciculations. And so yes. that's a really helpful thing that just the idea of like, well, you know, these could be actually just moments of healing and moments of um, recovery rather than new reasons to fear. Absolutely. What's amazing is that we're never taught what nervous system discharge looks like in the body. And so many of the things that actually help us discharge and recover we have kind of cultural narratives around them being signs of weakness or that, and so we tend, even as they start, we tend to block them. Um, and that's why I list them all in the book and I make a big point of teaching about them because I didn't know what they were. And, you know, when you start blocking them in a regular way, the survival brain stops really trying to do it because over time it just kind of gets worn down. But as they start happening again, they can accelerate. And the more of this previous stress and trauma that we're discharging, the more that we are loosening that allostatic load that's making our condition worse. So um, two common ones that people don't know are signs of discharge, but they're happen when we're awake, but that we often write off as weakness. Number one is tears. Tears is actually a sign of discharge. And so many times when we find ourselves crying, um, in frustration or crying after fear or you know just crying in relief after a really hard moment we think oh there's something must be wrong with me and the tears actually again start one of those narratives of, of this is a bad thing tears is a good thing let let the let the tears happen the other one that people don't know but is really important is sometimes when we get little tremors and little twitches those are all signs of discharge. Now, obviously, if some, there are several conditions that can have those as a kind of constant thing. But if it's not a constant thing, and it's especially if it's like after you've worked out or after you have had, um, a, like you, you, you find yourself in kind of a relaxed place and then you see some twitching, that's actually a sign that the nervous system is discharging. When I would train troops after they, um, when they were learning about this, they many of them had already had one combat deployment before they were going on another combat deployment. And I explained what was going on. They're like, oh, like I remember I was on this ambush. We were on an ambush. We came back inside the wire. We're about to clean weapons. My hands start shaking, and I'm thinking, the rest of the guys are going to think I'm a coward. And they put their hands up under their arms to stop it, you know. And 
That's just blocking the process. I have a fantasy that all these military people who have taken your course are now like crying in public openly. Like I like to tell my patients, if I haven't cried in public before noon, I'm not working my program. <laughs> no, I do. I agree. It's, I think it's so important. And it's, 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 again, one more thing. If our body's trying to speak in a certain way or trying to release something and we're shoving it under the carpet, like that's just one more thing we get to carry into the next moment, which is burdening. Yes, absolutely right. I fully agree. Yeah. So I'm curious, how long does your, I mean, are you doing a regimen every day in maintenance? Are you just, have you just so embodied all these tools that you're kind of just like, like Neo in the matrix, just moving through life and like, kind of like doing. No, 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 no. Oh, I absolutely, there, there is nothing that I, that I teach that I don't maintain on a regular basis in my own life. So I practice, you know, 30 or 45 minutes a day. Um, I also do yin yoga um, probably three or four times a week. I eat really healthily. Um, I, you know, totally, one of the early revolutions in this process was my diet, um, gave up gluten, gave up dairy. Like I did the whole back to nothing diet and then sort of rebuilt. Um, and for many, for about a year, I was really religious with the body ecology diet, which is very, Biotic focused to rebuild my gut. And I, you know, I also had a, a yeast problem, a chronic, you know, candida problem. So I had a lot of herks from that. And I didn't really even understand what that was at that point. And then you know, after they figured out the Lyme, I did a whole nother round of, of detox with the diet. Um, so much of our immune system lives in the microbiome in all of those uh, gut flora, you know, throughout our digestive tract. 70% of our immune system is there. And you know, for many people who are also coping with anxiety and depression on top of a physical illness, it's also important to realize that the microbiome produces 95% of our neurotransmitter serotonin. And serotonin is really important for, you know, when that's imbalanced, we're much more likely to have and, and deal with anxiety disorders, depression, chronic pain, insomnia, migraine headaches, like all of those things get exacerbated when our gut is out of whack. So um, another really supportive thing to do is really focusing on eating enough probiotic foods, eating whole foods, avoiding all of the things that are hard on the microbiome, or at least using them in moderation. Um, and the problem is many people who are dealing with chronic conditions have to take medications that are hard on the microbiome. So that part you might not be able to control, but you can control the foods you're consuming that, that match that. Um, For sure. You and I, you and I have led really similar um, parallel paths, I think, through this whole maze. And, and I, know, I know I'm wondering, a lot of people are probably really <clears throat> wondering, did you take antibiotics? Did you, like, what was your Lyme, you know, kind of Lyme killing regimen? And some people don't have one. They just support the immune system and really reboot their own innate capacity to heal. And that takes care of it. And others do opt for antibiotics. Where were you on that whole on that whole spectrum of choices? Well, um, I had taken a ton of antibiotics when I was in the army because anytime I would get one of these respiratory infections, they'd throw antibiotics at me. And then I had that pneumonia really badly. So I had done a lot of antibiotics and a lot of oral steroids that had completely whacked my system out. Um, and that's part of why I had such a bad candida problem when I left the army and was starting to change my diet. 
it took, and you know, it was still another 15 years after that point when I had the Lyme diagnosed. And my, I went to a, a doctor who does work with a lot of Lyme patients, and he had me alternating between periods of antibiotics, periods of antifungals, and I was also taking Baluk, which is the um, lumbricon. earthworms. The ground up earthworms that are just amazing for helping to, to, to get rid of that stuff. It's a, in some ways, it feels like a synchronicity or a, yeah, a synchronicity that I, my Lyme wasn't diagnosed until they had already done all of the research about the lumbrokinase. So I feel like, because um, it was only, it was only diagnosed in, in 2012. Um, so I felt like I was able to benefit from advances in the science, even though I'd had the disease for as long as I did. Um, I still, my immune functioning is, is always, I think, going to be probably more suppressed than other people, even with all the work I have done to, to help my body to heal. I, I'm just sitting on three, you know, three decades before I did anything, and then several decades of, it's just, it's cumulative. So I know I'm always gonna be more sensitive. That's just how this mind and body have been wired. I have to take it really seriously, and it's gotten way better. But I know that if there's potentially an environmental like toxin, I'm going to be the one that's going to be more likely to, to have an issue with it. I had a mold problem in my house um, last year, and it, it took me having bronchitis, a really bad bronchitis, which I hadn't had in you know, 15 years. And I was like, wow, I've really had bad bronchitis. What's going on? Um, and there was a smell in my bathroom and I was like, you know, I wonder, and I had someone come in and check and I had to do a whole bunch of work on the house last year. And, you know, I just know that, okay, that's how I am wired and I'm going to be much more sensitive to it. Does that mean I'm not healthy on a regular? No, I'm healthy on a very regular basis, but I'm just sensitive and I know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is that your thinking brain or is that your survival brain telling that story? I'm just just curious and that's absolutely my thinking brain telling the story my sur my survival brain in the moment of smelling that mold had this massive like nausea wave and rapid heart rate where it was like oh my gosh like I'm really finally paying attention to the stressor and my body does not like the feeling of it and that turned on a certain amount of stress arousal that started this story of well I'm just going to be you know compromised in this way but after sitting down, doing a round and ground and release, going for a walk outside, sitting outside and feeling being outside and seeing my system calm down, just knowing in my gut, there's something not right in my house right now. I came back inside. I started doing research on mold inspectors in my area. I called three and interviewed them. One of them I felt really simpatico to with his approach. He came, he did it. It was, it was clear like there was a path through that. But I, it was, I knew that that was there long before the mold inspector was there just because I could see the difference in how my body was reacting sitting in that bathroom and how my body reacted after a walk when I was sitting outside. There was just a difference. And I think for so many of us who have coped with chronic illness and have had a lot of interactions with healthcare providers and experts, we tend to like not trust our own instincts anymore, that we have to look to everybody else. I needed confirmation before I wanted to do all that work, but I knew and I needed to listen to that knowledge, you know? Um, yeah, that's such an important message. So many people in this community have really been, 
you know, gaslighted by their doctors and by their friends or well-meaning friends and their spouses. You know, one of the things I teach people is that 25% of us really don't process mold out of our body. Like we can't, we can whip it up into our immune system up into a frenzy and we can create that response, but we can't then take the second step to discharge it from the body. And that's one in four people. And in my, in my patient population, it's like nine out of 10. I mean, it's the reason they're sick from Lyme is that their immune yes. system has been so tanked by the other things that they can't get rid of. And um, yeah, that's a hugely important message. I'm so glad you brought that up. People are not crazy. No, not crazy. The way that we found out that I had Lyme, I had been bit by a spider and my on my wrist and my wrist swelled up huge and I got this really bad fever. They put me my whole arm ended up swelling up. They put me on antibiotics. And then after that ended, I went through this phase of starting to get blurry vision again and getting a lot of brain fog, starting to have like different kind of cognitive symptoms. And I did the visual acuity test for chronic neurotoxins and I failed it. And that's what made my doctor say, well, some people can't process toxins from arachnids. We should get you tested. And I'm one of the, it's one in 10 have this genetic marker. I'm one of these people. So then I started cholestyramine as a way to bind the toxin. And and I did cholestyramine all through my Lyme treatment. It was only after the spider bite that he was like, you know, there's another kind of arachnid. That's a tick. (laughs) Have you ever been tested for Lyme? And I said, no. And that's what helped us find out the Lyme and with Western blot, they could find out the age of the, you know, how, how, how long the disease had been in the body. Um, so cholestyramine is really important if you're dealing with Lyme, if you're dealing with mold and, and you have like this inability to process and get the stuff out of your body. Um, yeah. So for people listening to this, who've never heard of cholestyramine, it's a pharmaceutical agent. It's an old drug used for anti-cholesterol, cholesterol lowering medication that binds up um, bile salts as well as other toxins in the gut um, so that you poop them out basically. Um, and it's, there are a lot of other things, there are a lot of things people can use that aren't pharmaceutical drugs. People use um, bentonite clay for the same purpose, for example, that's my favorite. But yeah, it's been hugely helpful for this, for this you know, subset of people who genetically just don't, we're at a disadvantage, right? We don't sort of bind those things and remove them. We can just get into it, whipped, whipped up into a frenzy about it, get very inflamed and, and sort of accumulate these toxins over time. So yeah, I'm glad that you, it sounds like you had a very um, cutting edge doctor. Yes. Um, he uh, is, he runs an integrative health clinic here in the DC area um, and has written a fabulous book that I talk about in some of the later chapters in my book. It's called Total Recovery. Um, and he really looks at the links between chronic pain and depression because he saw so much of that in his patients um, and they, they share the commonality underneath of chronic inflammation. Chronic inflammation of course is one of the things that happens when we've had imbalances in our microbiome but chronic inflammation also happens often as an epigenetic change sometimes it didn't even originate with us so I want to talk about that for a minute. Yes let's go there. Um, So epigenetics is the understanding of how our genes are expressing. You know, many, when I teach mind fitness, people will often come to me and say, well, this could never work for me because anxiety runs in my family. And, you know, I always respond, well, you know, 
there might have been a lot of anxiety in your family, but that doesn't mean that it's a death sentence that you're necessarily going to have to have that happen. We talked some about epigenetics. So, which just like any repeated experience is changing our brain. That's the idea of neuroplasticity, and that's gotten a lot of popularity in the last you know, 10 or 15 years. Epigenetics is working in the same way. Our repeated experiences are turning on or turning off gene expression. And the most recent research is really showing that these epigenetic changes to turn a gene off or, uh, or on, they can actually be passed to offspring. And so often if our parents or grandparents had chronic stress and trauma and had turned on um, or turned off gene expression towards inflammation in the body, that can then get passed to children and grandchildren through generations. There have been several studies that have looked at differences in stress hormone levels and in expressions of different um, physical and emotional um, psychological diseases where the parent or grandparent had been coping with um, some chronic health condition and it began to express. And this isn't just that genes run in the family, it's that, you know, yes, there is, we, we do have some genetic structure that is structuring our life. But the, the really important piece in all of this is recognizing how much it's the point of repeated experience. Repeated stress is what turns on many detrimental epigenetic changes. Repeated chronic sleep deprivation is really a big driver of detrimental epigenetic changes. But our research and others' research has shown that even just eight weeks of consistent practice of mindfulness techniques or MFIT can turn off chronic inflammation, can begin to see shifts in um, the length of telomeres and you know, other aspects of our immunity. In our studies with Marines, we found eight weeks of training really changed one of the blood biomarkers for immunity. It's called insulin microfactor. Mm -hmm. And it's very linked with when we're getting restful sleep. So the Marines reported getting more sleep and then they saw real changes in their blood levels in IGF-1. And it's been linked in lots of studies with better immune functioning and, and better health. So you know, just eight weeks of consistent practice can lead to undoing any detrimental epigenetic changes we've had. And this, this happens with getting enough sleep, eating well, getting enough physical exercise. That's another like excellent habit for undoing detrimental epigenetic changes. Um, and so even for those of us who have had challenges with physical health, we can make changes with these little habits we're doing each day that can begin to shift, not just the way the brain is processing it, but the way our, our whole body is processing it. Yeah, and I would, I would even go as far to say, especially if you've had challenges like this, you can't afford not to be doing the fundamentals. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a really hopeful way to, to sort of land. And I wonder in the last few minutes, if there's anything else that you would wanna share with this audience to leave them with more hope or more information that, that we haven't covered yet. What have we missed? What have we missed? I would just want to reiterate a main takeaway that we always have choice. You know, even, even when the situation feels like it's entirely outside of our control, 
we always have choice in this moment where we're directing our attention. And wherever we're directing our attention, consciously or unconsciously, it is having profound ripple effects through our brain, our nervous system, and our body. Most of us are not aware of where our attention is being drawn. It's off mind wandering, or we're you know, caught in worry and planning the to-do list, or we're caught remembering, or any of those mental habits, even our physical habits of you know, looking at lots of devices and switching between multiple screens, all of those things have effects on our attention and then that ripples through our whole body. So just becoming aware that we have this choice of where we're directing our attention. And even in a moment when it feels completely hopeless and out of control, we can always just take a moment, shut your eyes, notice how the chair is supporting you. Give it 30 seconds and I promise things will have shifted in some way and other choices for what you can reach for will be available to you in that. Awesome. For people who are hearing this and just as I have fallen in love with you at this point and want to know everything you know, what would be the next step that people could take if they wanted to really dig into this information and learn more? Well, I would definitely love to send people to my website, um, www.elizabeth-stanley.com. You can read about all the published scientific research of the four studies that we've done with troops preparing for combat, which is a pretty stressful situation. Um, and there you can get information about the course. Um, I teach it live for groups, but we're also um, about to launch uh, an online version of the course. I've partnered with a company called Sounds True, and that will be available starting in October and someone can do the entire eight-week course um, on their own time with some live you know, Q&A support. Um, and they can download the contact points exercise from the, from the website. And I also have links there to the practitioner directories for certified practitioners in different body-based trauma therapies. So if someone's survival brain is still hyper active as a result of prior trauma that might not yet be healed, that is almost certainly exacerbating their chronic health condition, I highly recommend even two to four sessions. It's not like talk therapy at all. It's much more focused on helping the survival brain. The therapist is directing your attention so that your survival brain can recover from those events. And sometimes just a few sessions can have a tremendous effect on our physical and mental and emotional well-being. Um, so links to certified practitioners in those different modalities are also available on my website. Thank you. And I'm just going to remind everyone about this as well. For people who like to hold something in their hot little hands and mark it up like I do, this is a great reference too. It's not just, all, it's all the research and all the background and, and, and Liz's story, but it's also the information about how to do this stuff. So yes, the whole, the whole third part of the book is all about how to widen our, build our resilience and widen our window of tolerance. So there's eight chapters in there with lots of tips. We've talked about some of them, but there's many more. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. This has been hugely informative. And I want to just personally, as a physician who works with patients who have the kinds of things you're struggling, you struggled with and have moved beyond, I often tell people, you know, 
you're going to have so much to share at the other side of this. I truly believe that these journeys have meaning and they have significance and they can touch so many lives besides our own when we share what we know. But I also remind people, like, not yet. You don't have to do that yet. You don't have to be like <laughs> researching this and going crazy about it and just just heal yourself and then see what what you're called to do on the other side. And I just want to acknowledge you for taking the call to share what you've learned because it's just so, um, it's so profound and so helpful and it will help so many people. So thank you. Thank you so much for our time today and for allowing me a chance to share some of what I've learned with um, everyone in this community. I mean, this is my tribe too. I, I have I have grown up and, and lived this path with you. And I, I know what it's like. Um, I've been there and I'm really, really glad to be at this place where I can pay it forward like many people paid it forward for me along the way too. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healing Grove podcast. If you liked it, please be sure to like and subscribe. And if you want to deepen your experience further, consider grabbing a copy of the Healing Grove Playbook. With journal prompts for this podcast and 41 others, it's the perfect place to record your learnings, keep track of the tools you explore, and reflect on your own experience. Finally, it's important to mention that even though I am a doctor, nothing you hear on this podcast, whether from myself or my guests, constitutes medical advice. Any intervention you try should always be discussed with and supervised by a trusted member of your own healing team. Thanks for listening and see you next time in the Healing Grove.